Welcome to season two of the First Prez podcast. Last season was titled Gathered and Sent. It was all about our purpose and mission, being both gathered as the church to equip and encourage one another and sent to be the church in our neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. This season, we're focusing on the five values that guide all of our decisions as a church. We believe that we are called to be disciple-making disciples of Jesus, who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. So welcome to season two, Values and Direction. So we're starting a little mini-series for just the rest of August. We're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, if you were here or if you watched online, uh, we just read through the Sermon on the Mount. I told you it was the greatest sermon ever preached. The cool thing about last week, now I'm aware that some of you, this might be your first time back in the sanctuary since March, and we are so glad you're here. One of the strangest things about preaching in this way is with your faces covered, I, I have no idea what you're thinking. Like, None. And kind of tell what Bill Ford's thinking because he just says it, but I don't really know what the rest of you are thinking. Except for last week when I said you're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached, I totally knew what every person in this room was thinking because every single one of you did this. <laughs> like, you totally learned how to use your eyes to give me some feedback, so I love it, I appreciate it. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so the next couple weeks we're just going to go through some comfort and challenging sections in the Sermon on the Mount, and then starting in September... Uh, after Labor Day, we're going to go through the book of Revelation, and uh, really excited about that. We're going to take as long as we need to take to get through that. Um, should be a lot of fun. So, like I told you last week, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is both a sermon that provides comfort and a sermon that challenges us. So, there are parts of it, there are parts in which we find just our only hope, right? The only hope we have. But then there are other times, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, that it can really feel like there's this measuring stick that's being set next to us. That like we're being shown this standard that we can just never live up to. So there's a reason for this, this is intentional. What we are encountering in Jesus, what we're encountering when Jesus teaches, it's the presence of the kingdom of God that is invaded and is now in the midst of all the kingdoms that we are building for ourselves. A perfect kingdom has invaded a bunch of broken ones. And the simple truth is, his kingdom and ours, they cannot coexist. They just can't. Like there is no scenario in which Jesus is gonna return one day and say, okay, Chad, fine. You can be in charge of this and this and this. Is it okay if I just take over over here? That is just not gonna happen. My kingdom and Jesus' kingdom cannot coexist because he is either the king or he's not. He's either the king of our lives or he's not. Now if he is, if he's the king of your life, then you enjoy that shalom and beauty of his kingdom. You get to enjoy it forever. And he tells us that we even have access to that shalom and that beauty of his kingdom. In part, we have access to it now. If he's your king. If he isn't your king, that's your choice and he will accept that. He will not force you to be a citizen of his kingdom. He'll let you choose to continue on your own. The problem is that only one of those kingdoms is going to last. 
and we know this is true from every human that's ever lived. I mean, no matter how powerful and prosperous their kingdoms might have become, every one of us has or will come to the end of this life. I mean, the Caesars in Jesus' day ruled the known world. People thought they were gods. Guess what happened to them? They died. They found the end of this life. And guess what happened to all their buildings and all their stuff? They're now partial tourist attractions. You see, when we come to the end, when that happens, everything that we have built or attained or accumulated in this life, it's left behind. And it's left behind for others to either enjoy or destroy. So at some point, no matter how powerful and prosperous we become in this life, we never get to have the keys to our own little version of eternal life. We don't get to build that. No human kingdom lasts forever. They rarely last more than a couple generations, to be honest. And in that truth, there is both a challenge and there's comfort. Now, there's another reason that Jesus challenges and comforts. When he was sitting with his disciples and those crowds that were following, there were also teachers of law and Pharisees who were listening and trying to convict Jesus. So he knew that in his audience that there were people who were aware that they were poor and had nothing to offer him, that they were not worthy of the kingdom that he was providing. But in that same audience, there were some who thought that they deserved the kingdom of heaven because of their religious performance, because of how good they were at being religious. That would get them in. So the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these Beatitudes, which with Jesus begins his sermon, the ones that Sabrina just read, they're all about perspective. They're all about the viewpoint from which you experience and understand life. So for those who were around Jesus at that time, if their view of the world was centered on themselves, they were unable to see the kingdom of heaven because they were just looking inward. But for those who are around Jesus that knew their own weakness, that knew their depravity, that's the vantage point from where people can begin to experience the kingdom of heaven. When you find yourself among those who recognize your own poverty, your own destituteness in front of Jesus, that's when you begin to understand and see the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. You start looking beyond yourself, and now you're looking towards Jesus. So Jesus is not saying that it's better to be poor. He's not saying it's better to be poor. He's saying that we are all poor. That in his presence, none of us, no matter how much we've built or accumulated, none of us have anything of worth to bring into his kingdom. He came for those who were unworthy, for those who were dead in their sin. And he did that in order to make us worthy. Now guess who is included in that party of people? It's you and me and every human that has ever lived besides Jesus himself. We are all dead in our sin. We are all unworthy of his grace. We are all broken and destitute. We are all unable to provide for our own salvation. So Jesus is simply telling us, it's better to just accept that truth than to go on living in some false reality. You see, if you think that you have all the answers, if you think that you can solve all the problems, guess who you'll look to when a problem arises? 
Yeah, you look to yourself. But when you come to the end of yourself, when you realize you don't have all the answers, then you'll look to him. I mean, I tell my kids all the time, the first time I told my kids this, it was like a huge relief. The first time I told them, y'all, adults are totally faking it. <laughs> like, we are totally faking it. Sometimes we know what we're doing, but for the most part, we are totally faking it. You see, the truth that we need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a measure that's being held next to us. It's not given to us to be some unattainable standard. I mean, that would just be cruel. The Sermon on the Mount, it's a description of a kingdom that's coming, and more specifically, it's the description of the kind of life that that kingdom's citizens will live. And the good news is that it's a promise that for those who choose that kingdom, that they'll be given the power and access to that kingdom life even now. So it's ultimately a choice. With which perspective will we view the world? To whose kingdom are we going to give our ultimate allegiance? Which way of life do we really want to live? Ultimately, the central question that Christianity poses is this. Whose way is best? Yours, mine, or Jesus's? And he is simply making the case. He is describing to us what real life is like. What it's like to experience true joy. How to find real happiness and contentment beginning in this life and extending into eternity. So the problem for us, and there's always a problem, the problem for us is that his words, if we're just really honest, the things that Jesus say, says, it sounds ridiculous. His words sound ridiculous to us when we compare them to the values of every human kingdom that's ever been built. I mean, like in Beth's story, like, okay, there's really a well that never dries up. You can just take your expanding bucket and fill it up anytime you want. His words sound crazy. And I think, unfortunately, we become so convinced of the beatitudes of this world that we take Jesus' words as nothing more than idealistic sayings. I think he means what he's saying. You see, every culture has its own set of values. In Jesus' time, um, they had their own values. They had their ways of measuring success and happiness. Uh, for them, it was freedom from the domination of Rome. Maybe freedom from oppressive tax collectors. 2,000 years ago, people respected others who were good negotiators in the marketplace, who had built businesses. In almost all cultures, the ability to provide for your family you and those you love enjoying health and prosperity, those are important values and people look up to people who have that experience. In our time, we have a lot of those same values, uh, but <laughs> we're super creative. We have some new weird ones too. Um, we have reality shows and like online influencers now, which is a job to be an online influencer. Uh, reality shows and online influencers are convincing us every day that we deserve need, and should go after attention. That our goal should be to be followed, to trend, to be liked. Y'all, I have to tell one of my kids almost every day, it does not matter how many people like or follow 
or retweet whatever you just put on social. It doesn't matter. And that kid tells me every day, I know it doesn't matter. And then I see that kid every day checking again. How many people liked what I just posted? If our world's doing it to our kids, it's doing it to us every day. Uh, Every day, ads for men, wherever you look. Virility, ambition. Ads for women. Apparently, there's some arbitrary ideal beauty that you're supposed to be attaining. Which, by the way, changes like every 20 or 30 years, so good luck. There's also apparently descriptions of the perfect relationship that you're supposed to be able to have. Good luck, you're stuck with us. There are trade publications that are telling us that you can be financially successful if you just follow these certain steps. There are sports shows that are reinforcing that the best thing in the world is to win, no matter the cost. So of all those things, what actually lasts? Of all that, what really matters? And I'm not demonizing it. I'm just asking, which of those lasts forever? Y'all, no one is trending forever. No one is always liked. (laughs) We're not always likable. I mean, virility, ambition, they don't last, wealth, beauty, success, none of it is eternal. So the truth is that this world is making promises to us every day. It's making promises that it can never deliver. This world will never deliver on the promises it's making to us every single day. Here's how one author says it. Uh, He says, for many of us who follow the role that our culture sets out for us, the initial way may look very appealing. Who wouldn't want to have a healthy family or provide for their household? And even though we recognize the potential pitfalls, the tangled roots that might trip us up, the trouble appears to be worth it. Then somewhere down the way, the culture's promises turn out to be erratic. And there are traps and dead ends that we didn't expect. We hurl ourselves at our work, yet we find ourselves spending more and more time there at the expense of the family for which we are trying to provide. And no matter how much time we spend there, there's no guarantee of success. We pursue every medical test available, yet sooner or later our bodies fail us one way or another. We chase after power, but then find out that if we ever attain it, we spend most of our time defending it. Our culture says to us, happy are those with great jobs and marriages because they are successful. But what about those who never marry? What about those who never find that perfect job? Are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are the destitute because they recognize their need for the kingdom of God. Our culture says, happy are those who have power because they are in charge. What about the vast majority of people who are never in charge? Are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are those who are humble. Not those who think less of themselves, just those who think of themselves less. They will be the ones who inherit the earth. Our culture says, happy are the people who can afford any pleasure because they can do whatever makes them feel good. What about those who can't afford even more than a simple meal or a pair of clothes? 
Are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right relationship with God and with others, because they will be nourished by that right relationship. Our culture says, happy are those who beat down their opponents because they're winners. What about those who just aren't as tough and as strong? What about those who aren't as talented? What about those who just never rise to the top? Are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are those who make peace because they are God's children. Our culture says, happy are people whose lives are lived in total freedom to do whatever they want because they don't have any restraints. What about the billions of people who have lived on this planet who never had access to real freedom? Right now, are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are people whose lives are harassed because of their righteousness, because they will overcome the restraint of death. Our culture says, happy are people who are popular because they will be rewarded with a great reputation. Well, what about the people who aren't liked? What about the people who just aren't popular? Are they worth less? Jesus says, happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak bad and false things about you because of me. Be so full of joy because you have a great reward in heaven. You will find your joy in me because you're being harassed and slandered just like I was. You see, I really believe Jesus' words are not just idealistic sayings. He's not like some hippie saying, wouldn't it be great if? (laughs) He's not dreaming, wishing for some better tomorrow. He is serious. And we need to start taking him seriously. It's hard because the way of Jesus doesn't initially seem very appealing. It doesn't sound very exciting. But the farther that we walk with him, the more we find that his way is the only way. Because we discover that humility, unlike power, never needs to be defended. We discover that righteousness, just doing the right thing, it is its own reward. We find that a pure heart is much easier to live with every day than one that's filled with anger and jealousy or resentment or cynicism. So following Jesus one step at a time, even if we are persecuted for it, following Jesus one step at a time leads to a joy that nothing in this world could ever take away. That is true freedom. That's real freedom. And it can begin now. I told you we're, we're calling this little one-month series How to Tame the Beast. Um, in Scripture, the beast is a way of describing anything that stands in opposition to God and to God's coming kingdom. Uh, so this fall, like I said, we're going to go through the book of Revelation, and we're going to hear about beasts a lot. We're going to hear about beasts that rise within us and beasts that rise around us that all stand in opposition to God's will. It's true in like this cos- cosmic good and evil sense, but it's also true in a very personal way. Because that beast that stands in opposition to God's purposes for me, it lives within me too. 
And that beast needs to not only be tamed, but ultimately it needs to be destroyed if I'm going to become an image bearer like God created me to be. So the question is, how do we tame the beast? We don't. See, the beast within us, that cosmic evil that stands in opposition to God himself, it can't be defeated by me. It can't. It can only be defeated by Jesus. And the good news that we come here to celebrate is that that defeat already began 2,000 years ago. And not because he sat down on a throne, but because he hung on a cross. It's one of my favorite scenes in Revelation. We'll talk about it in a few weeks. The final battle, it's in Revelation 19. It's this really graphic description of the stage being set for Armageddon, this war that'll end all wars. And after all that description and all that buildup, do you know what happens the second Jesus shows up? Nothing. (laughs) The war's over. There is no war. There's no battle. As soon as Jesus arrives, the battle's over. Because evil, as bold and as brave as it thinks it is, it doesn't even stand a chance. It can't even exist in his presence. You see, that beast, that evil, it thought that the cross was the symbol of its victory. But the empty tomb transformed the cross from a human torture device into a throne. And Jesus' crucifixion actually became his enthronement. And when Christ is seated on his throne, all of us, the prisoners of sin and shame, we are finally set free. And that's why this matters for us now. Because that power of Christ's resurrection, it now lives in us. The values of the kingdom of God are no longer just present with Jesus as he walks on earth. They're present in us, within us. Because that Holy Spirit lives in us. Not a standard that we have to strive to attain, but a promise that if we trust him and submit to him, the kingdom will be experienced through us. It's a promise and it's a gift. We just have to receive it. You see, we are now free and able to simply live in the honest awareness that we're broken. That we're just faking it. That we desperately need him. Because he was victorious in forever healing our sin and shame. Because of the work of Jesus, we are free and able now to be merciful and humble because we are aware that the only authority and power that really matters is God's. Any power that I could attain on this earth, any stuff that I could accumulate on this earth, it's silliness compared to God's power and the glory of God's kingdom. And the good news is that we can trust him to use that power and that authority for good. Now, we are not free from suffering, but we are now capable of enduring it. Because in our suffering, we are able to identify with Christ, the one who willingly chose the way of suffering for us. We're blessed in our suffering because in it we can find our identity in the God who suffers. Suffering to the Christian is not punishment for something we've done wrong, it's just part of life in this broken world. And we can now see it as a storm. But with a storm comes rain that nourishes us and helps the fruit that Christ has planted in us to grow. Paul is later on going to write that suffering produces character because through it we understand that we can't rely on ourselves or on this world. 
We can't find our hope in the words or the ways of man. We have to look to Jesus to find our way through. The promise is that in our suffering, in our poverty, when we begin to look outside ourselves, then we will see God. Then we will see God in Christ, hanging on the cross, seated on his throne, finally victorious. You see, the Beatitudes, they are not levels of holiness that we have to achieve. They're not a set of keys that let us unlock the door to God's kingdom by ourselves. The Beatitudes are not the way we tame the beast. They are evidence that Christ already has. They're a gift. They're the gift of awareness. The realization that the ways of the beast, the ways of this world will never deliver the promises that they make. That only God is capable of delivering on his eternal promise. That only in God's kingdom will we find true peace and true justice. And the only way into that kingdom is the way of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just keep thinking of that really old worship song like from so long ago, like when I was in college. It's just, you're my strength when I am weak. When I think about how profound that simple song really is, um, that's, that's the best way to describe my entire life. God, I pray that you would help those of us who are aware of our brokenness, who are aware of our weakness, give us the comfort we need. This is a really messed up time. There have been a lot of weird moments in history, but this is ours. Give us the comfort we need to know that we can trust and rely on you. And God, for those who are still wrestling, who are still thinking that they have all the answers, that they can solve all the world's problems, just humble them so that they can see you more clearly. Give them the peace and the freedom to let go of all that baggage and just trust you. To use their gifts and their skills and their talents to work hard to do what you call them to do. But ultimately to trust that yours is the victory, yours is the glory, and yours is the way to eternal life and to true life now. So God, as always, give us the strength and the courage to believe the gospel so that we may live it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.